So my name is Laura. Um, I am married to Andy, <clears throat> who is the youth pastor here at Zion. And this is the third week in uh, a series on dangerous love. And this morning, uh, I'm talking to you about the power of love. I saw on like the timetable thing that I had this week. And to be honest with you, I was delighted. I absolutely love that song. It's one of my all-time favorites. I had the best time at the beginning. Um, So I am speaking to you about the power of love. Before we start, I'm going to pray because that will be good. Okay, Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning you will be here. Lord God, I ask that the words that I speak will be your words. Father, I pray that the ears that we listen with will be ears that hear what you want us to hear, Father God. I pray you would give us courage to look honestly at our own hearts, Jesus, um, this morning. And I pray that we would leave this place different to how we came because you have been here, Father. I pray that we will meet with you this morning in a way that's completely undeniable. God, just fill this place now. And, uh, yeah, change us. Amen. Brilliant. Okay. So, um, first things first. I want to look at a word to start off with. Um, As I was writing this talk, there was a certain word that kept coming back to me, and you'll see why later on, and that word is justify. Okay, the word justify. Those of you who don't aren't necessarily familiar with that word. The word justify means sort of to defend. So to be able to justify your behavior is to be able to defend your behavior. If you think in terms of theology, um, the word justify uh, can mean to be found innocent. So we have been justified um, by, by Jesus, so we are found innocent before God. If you, if you get that. Um, and then there's printing as well. In printing, there is the word justify, and I like this one. It kind of means to be in line if something is in line. So that our behavior is in line with the situation that we find ourselves in, okay, to justify. And the more that I've thought about this word, the more I've realized that us humans have a special gifting. We have a gifting to be able to justify pretty much anything that we really want to justify. And I want to tell you a story about that in a second. Um, I'm pastorally responsible for some of your children. I want you all to know I did the right thing in the end. Okay, Um, so I uh, I love shopping. I absolutely love shopping, and I particularly love clothes shopping. So um, when uh, before I got married, I used to literally spend whole days shopping. I'd book the days into my diary, swan off around the shops. I wouldn't necessarily buy a lot, but I would have the nicest time. And uh, and then I'd go home feeling all happy at night. Uh, But since then, ladies and gentlemen... I got married, and my husband does not share the same passion for shopping as me. In fact, it's completely the opposite. Andy has this illness where if he walks into a shop, right, he literally can handle it for five to ten minutes at a push, and then he almost starts having some sort of allergic reaction to it. He starts getting really grumpy and starts trying to convince me that all the things that I need to buy, that I don't really need to buy them right now. In fact, I could probably come back on my own later on and buy them without him. So I've had to adapt and evolve my shopping habits, okay? So I came up with um, something new. I came up with high-speed shopping. I call it hopping. All right, so what happens is we go out together, and I have a list, and Andy has a list, and we work through our list. Now, my aim is usually for him to spend longer on his list than I do on mine, because then I'll have a 10-minute window at the end of that shopping to do hopping, and I can run into a shop, buy something, and meet Andy by the time that he's finished his list. So, let me set the scene. We're in Mary Hill. 
Okay, and I have my list, he has his. And he uh, is off doing his thing. I get through mine, so I have a glorious five-minute hopping opportunity, right? So I think, that's it, I'm going to H&M. Other shops are available. And I go to H&M, and in there, I see this jacket. Personal preference, I like this jacket. Now, I bought this, and um, I got it, and I thought, well, I'll give Andy a quick call. Andy, do you mind if I get this jacket? I've seen it, I'm done with shopping, I promise I'll be quick. Come and meet you straight afterwards. Yeah, fine, great, okay. All going well. Now, between picking up this jacket and getting to the till, I saw this T-shirt right here and also saw these jeans. Now, there wasn't actually time to call Andy at this point, so I just thought I'll deal with the fallout from that later. So um, I went to the till, right, and I'm there, and I'm paying for these things. And as this goes through the till, I'm thinking, this seems very cheap. Oh, well, I'm in a rush. And I had about 40 seconds left before I started uh, to have to run out to the shop to meet Andy. So I paid for it. I got outside. Andy's there, looking slightly sulky. Look at my receipt, and I realise I haven't been charged for the jeans. Ooh, massive moral dilemma. So I'm stood there, right, with this receipt. And do you know what? I did not go back and pay for them. <gasps> it's bad, isn't it? Do you know what? In my heart, I wanted free jeans. So in my head, I justified why I shouldn't go back. And I can't remember exactly the justification I used. Um, I've come up with thing, three things that could have been. I think one of them might have been, oh, I buy so much from H&M, I deserve something free. Um, <laughs> another one may have been, um, oh, Andy's in such a rush to get home, we really need to go right now. The third one, and if I'm honest, I think this was the most likely, is, oh, free jeans from Jesus, yes! So... <laughs> I, at that time, I didn't go back and pay for the jeans. I promise you, at a later date, I called them up, I went back in, and these jeans have been paid for, we're all legal and above board. But, in my heart, I wanted free jeans. So in my head, I justified why I should have them. Okay? And um, in black and white, that was theft. Okay, that was theft. But I justified what my heart really wanted. And we do that, and we're good at it. And you know, when we do it in situations, that's one thing. But when we then turn that on its head and do that with how we treat people, it's a very dangerous thing. Because we justify why we don't dangerously love certain people or certain types of people. Oh yeah, now I... um. I didn't really, really stop and speak to them. I know they need someone to talk to, but I'm pretty tired, to be honest. I've got a lot on my plate. Or, um, do you know what? They really hurt me. They really hurt me in the past, and so I, I can't forgive them. I can't. They've hurt me. Or, um, they stole from me. They let me down. All these things we put in place to justify where we can't dangerously love other people. But when we're talking about dangerous love, love and justifying, it's very difficult to hold together. And this is where a lot of my thinking was around. Because if you start saying, I can't love this person because of this, then all of a sudden you're putting this bar in place that says this person does not deserve to be loved because of this. Now that isn't the kind of love that Jesus talks about. That isn't dangerous love. If you put on the other hand and say, oh, well, that, part, that person's really like me. We got on really well. So I'm happy to give money to them, to support them, to love them, to journey with them. Then again, you're putting a criteria in place that says if you tick all these boxes, you are worthy of being loved. That isn't dangerous love. But what if you have been hurt? What if um, you're really struggling to forgive someone? At that point, you almost begin to believe your justification. It's very, very difficult and this is kind of what I want to look around this morning. And thankfully, someone in the Bible asked Jesus exactly about this. So if we could turn to Luke 10. Luke 10, verse 
together. Oh, sorry, I hope that wasn't important. Um, So it's Luke 10, verses 25 to 29 that we are going to start at. I'll give you a second together. Okay, so these, um, it starts off with the verses that Dan spoke on last week. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with, sorry, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, the guy knew the answer to this question. He didn't ask because he didn't know the answer. He's an expert in the law. This is like basics. He asked for a very different reason. Some people think he was trying to chick Jesus. Yeah, potentially. But I believe there's something else there as well. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This guy is looking for a loophole. Well, really, I have to actually love them? How much? So Jesus responds. And how does Jesus respond? He responds by telling a story. He tells a story uh, based on a road. Now, this road is a long road, and it starts um, in a city, and it ends in another city. So at one end of this road, there's a city of Jerusalem. So I'm going to pop this sign up. Now, Jerusalem at the time, well, it still is, is a massive, massive city. Um, it was a walled city. It had been under attack quite a lot. So a lot of these walls had been broken down. Um, but the temple was the main thing in the city. Like, if you were going to the city, this would be one of the first things that you saw, almost like the focal point. But because of all the building and all those sorts of things, most of the people that lived in Jerusalem, their job um, was trade and craft. So there were a lot of people in Jerusalem who were builders, leather workers, um, fishermen, tent makers, carpenters, people who did stuff. And because Jerusalem didn't necessarily have a natural resource, it meant that those tradespeople weren't that well off. So there was a massive financial divide in Jerusalem between the tradespeople, the people who did stuff, and the elite in the above. And usually they were something to do with the Romans who were kind of running the place at the time, or to do with the temple. So it's a massive financial gap between the two. But Jerusalem was known as being the moral, religious, ethical, political sort of up there. It was known for being brilliant in those areas. And people would come from all around the world, go on pilgrimage, to Jerusalem, to the temple. And that's how Jerusalem made its money. It was through the temple. That's where the sort of financial turnover happened. So Jerusalem is at one end of the road. Now, on the other end of the road is another city. And this city is Jericho. Jericho is very, very different to Jerusalem. Jericho was kind of like a holiday destination, almost a kind of nicer version of Butlins or something. And uh, Jericho was like the best place to be. You see, Jerusalem was way high up on a mountain, like really high, really exposed, really cold, really windy. And Jericho wasn't like that. Jericho was set below sea level. So it was warmer, um, it was much more sheltered. Jericho had a lot of rivers going through it and a lot of streams, so it was very well watered. Um, There was a lot of greenery there. It was sort of known as the City of Palms. And a lot of the people who worked in the temple in Jerusalem lived in Jericho. So they would travel along this road a lot. Uh, I read that about about 1,200 temple workers lived in Jericho, because that was kind of their hangout. So people would travel back and forth on this road loads. Um, And in between was the road itself. Now, there's a picture that's going to come up. Um, Let me just move this aside a little. Um, And on this road, 
It was dangerous. It was about 17 miles long, roughly. It was really bendy and windy, and there were caves. And um, people got attacked on this road a lot. It was a common thing. Uh, This road was known so much in that kind of way, I guess, that um, it was known as the Bloody Pass. And I read that people would arm themselves just to travel along this road. So Jesus tells this story, and when he says this road, things come to people's minds straight away. And Jesus tells this story about this guy. This guy who was traveling along the road, slightly creased guy, and uh, he was traveling along the road, and he got attacked right there. And he got attacked, and he got set upon by robbers, and stripped, and beaten, and all these kinds of things. So we are just going to quickly read uh, Luke 10, verse 30. Okay, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, the next thing he says is that a priest happened to be going down the same road. Now, people would have heard this, and when he said priest, something would have come to mind. They'd be, yes, the priest, it's all okay. You see, the priest was considered like the elite. They were like the people who knew what they were doing. These guys were kind of the moral compass of the nation, much like I'm sure you consider the Zion leadership team here, your moral compass. Now, these guys were were the people that worked in the temple. These guys were set apart. They worked at the altar. They would set fires. They would sacrifice the animals. These people are the people that were good enough to come before God and intercede or come on behalf of, stand in between the normal everyday people and God. They were up there. If anyone was going to be helpful to this guy here, it was him. However, it says later on in that verse that this guy just walked right on by. He passed on the other side. Why would he do that? If he's this great godly guy, why would he ignore this guy just here? Well, I genuinely think that the priest could justify his behavior. You see, um, the priests were not allowed to become unclean, ceremonially unclean. And if he'd have come near a dead body, if he was dead, he would have become unclean. I want to just quickly read to you from Leviticus 21. You don't need to go there, it's really quick, but I promise I'm not making it up. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die, except for those close relatives, such as his mother or father, his son or daughter or his brother. Now, the chances are, this was not a family member. Okay, so if this guy had come up and looked after him and got close to him and touched him, he would have become unclean. This is a problem, okay, because the priests would work in the temple, and they would probably be there for, like, seven days working, and then they would go back and have seven days off, whatever, and if he... Okay, there's two possibilities. If he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, then he has just finished his priestly duties, right? He comes back, sees this guy, looks after him, becomes unclean. He has then got to make himself clean again. So he has to head all the way back up the road, back up to Jerusalem, bathe in a pool, wait seven days, by which point it might be time for him to work again, and he's just like wasted his week off. To be honest with you, it's easier not to bother. If he's going the other way, right, he's going from Jericho to Jerusalem, And he's traveling up here, sees this guy, becomes unclean, goes to Jerusalem. He can't serve in the temple. He can't do his job because he's unclean. So then again, he has to go to the pool, wait for seven days, hang out there. At which point, he's not earning money for his family and he's missed his slot of working. It's easier for him to keep his distance from this guy because it would just mess things up if he doesn't. 
This guy is so busy doing what's good that he misses what's right. And how many of us in our lives spend our time doing what's good but missing what's right? I've got this friend, Andy, and he lives in South Birmingham. And uh, he lives in, I think it's Mosley, somewhere around there. And he uh, has a next-door neighbour who lives a couple doors down. It's a really nice Muslim lady. And he came out of his, his house on a Sunday morning. And um, this woman's car had broken down. So she was in the street. He was just locking the door. And this woman said to this guy passing by, excuse me, sir, my car's broken down. Can you help me? And the guy said, no, I'm sorry. I'm on my way to church. It still happens. Okay, but if we're really honest and we look at our lives... How many of us are so busy with what's good that we miss what is right? We spend our time at church, a great thing to do. We're volunteering, whether it be here or somewhere else. We're at meetings, we're at work, we're looking after our family, we're doing up our house. We're shopping for food and stuff, we're trying to stay fit. Our lives are busy, we have busy lives, crammed full of absolutely everything that's really, really good. But how often do we miss what's right? I'm speaking to me in this, totally, I think, probably, number one culprit. Because as soon as we start looking after people that really need love, dangerous love, everything else gets, that's made a mess. You see, the thing is here, that this guy really, really needed someone. And I would hope, really hope, that if I knew that someone needed love, as busy as I was, I'd drop everything and I'd help them. I really hope that's true of me. But my real concern, if I'm honest, is that I'm so busy that I might not notice that he was lying in the middle of the road in the first place. I might not notice that he needed someone. So for this morning, for example, we as a church are a family. There could be someone sitting on your row that at the minute is absolutely desperate, really needs love, really needs someone to just help them out a little bit, be there for them. But how many of us are so busy that actually we wouldn't even know if that was true? It would certainly be true for me, I expect, if I was sat down there. How many of us, our lives are so busy with what's good that we miss what's right? And so you can justify it. You can justify the fact that that, that he's been walked past. You can justify the fact that the priest saw the guy and just walked by on the other side. But it's okay, because someone else came along. So if we keep on reading, um, we will see on verse 32. So the priest comes... And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Tuli, Tulu, Tulu, sorry, words. Um, on the other side, so too, that's better, a Levi, when he was coming to the place, saw the man. Now, again, people will be like, yes, score, someone who really will help him. So the Levi and the priest are slightly different. The Levi also worked in the temple. He was also someone good enough, someone godly enough to, to kind of work there. Not quite as good as the priest, but almost. The Levi was a sort of a practical person. He would serve in the temple. They'd do serving things. They would be dormant. They would even sing. And in this situation, who wouldn't want to be sung at? So you've got this guy who's there, okay? And he, um, he, he, you hear about him and you think, yes, not only a godly person, but a practical person. This is the person who's going to help. This is the person who's going to get involved. And yet we read that he too just passes by right on the other side, just walks straight on past. Now, why would he do that? Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. It might be exactly the same as the priest, that if he comes up to him, then he will become ceremonially unclean as well. Or it could be another reason. You see, on this road, there was sort of a technique. And um, what you could do is you could pretend that someone was hurt, like lying there, all hurt looking, and you, as, as a, a caring person, would get off your donkey, 
or whatever, and come and help this person here. And as you're helping, to, helping them and tending to them, other people will be watching, come up behind you and attack you, and you would end up in the situation that this guy's in right here. So it's all a trap. So in that setting, you can see and totally justify why the Levi wouldn't want to get involved. The personal cost could be too great. I remember that I used to live uh, in Oxford uh, when my second year at uni, and I had a habit of walking home on my own in the dark really late. It's something I'd probably need to nail. Anyway, I was walking home, right, this one night. It's probably about midnight, like I say, badly lit road, on my own, in the middle of nowhere. You can see where it's going. And uh, this guy, right, approaches me. Massive guy, hench, like really built. And um, this guy comes up to me. He's covered in blood, like covered in face, clothes, blood, everywhere. And he says, I'm from an army barracks. Will you help me get to the train station? I'm looking around. There's no one else here. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh. So um, I'm thinking, I'm not walking you 30 minutes to the train station. And I actually physically backed away from the guy because I was scared. I didn't want to put myself in a position where I could be attacked. And now what I'm not saying here is go out, meet everyone who's dangerous and put yourselves in those sorts of situations. If you're in an abusive relationship, stay there. That is not what I'm saying. You do not put yourselves in that sort of position. But what I am saying is what we need to think about is how do we work out that genuine danger and loving dangerously? How do we hold that together? And that's something I think for you to take to God. How do we work that out? But one of the things that really put me off, if I'm honest, um, dangerously loving other people is the personal cost that's involved. It costs. It costs emotionally. It costs your time. You open your home up to people. Sometimes it's a bit of an inconvenience. Um, I think it costs you spiritually. And even more so, what about when it's someone you need to forgive? What if someone's really hurt you and actually you need to forgive that person? That will cost you. Or what if someone's really hurt you in the past and you have to put yourself in a position where you could get hurt again? That will cost you. So what do we do in that situation? It's really, really difficult. If we choose to, we can justify why we shouldn't love dangerously. If that's what's in our heart, we can justify it. But I believe that if God had wanted to, he could have sat up in heaven with a magic stick, made it all better with humans and God, and not had to get involved at all. But what Jesus chose to do was come to earth, God came down in human form, got treated really badly and actually died, like full on died for us. He rolled up his sleeves, he got his hands dirty, he got involved and he chose to do that. Why? Because he wanted us to see what love was like. What does dangerous love look like? It looks like that. But again, if you choose to justify why you shouldn't get involved, you can do that if that's what's in your heart. So that's what this guy did. The Levi just walked straight on by. And I believe that we can choose to do exactly the same. But there was one other person. And this guy was a Samaritan. So if we just quickly read from verse 33. It says, But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, I need to explain to you how massive this is. Now, I'm not sure whether you are familiar with Samaritan-Jew relations. I don't know how deeply you go into that, but they, like, hated each other. Like, Villa, Birmingham City, hated each other. Like, more than that, even more. This went, like, proper, proper way back. And um, 
Originally, the country was divided in two, like ages ago, and there was a north and there was a south, and the north was called Israel, and this country, uh, nation, the Assyrians, came and invaded Israel, and they had such a good technique for defeating a country. Breed them out. Just do it that way. So what they did was they took half the Jews out of Israel and brought in Assyrians and got them to breed. Okay. Now, uh, they had little babies together, and they were the Samaritans. The problem with this is that all the Jews in the south knew full well that God had said, do not marry anybody who isn't a Jew. Don't do it. It's a total no-go area. So all the guys in the south are looking at the guys in the north going, you have sold out. You've made these half-breed children. And you know, many of us in the South, we would rather die than do that. But you have chosen the easy way out. You don't deserve to be called a Jew. You don't deserve your relationship with God. So there was this hatred, and it started like that. And then the Samaritans, they got this little area in the temple that they were allowed to go to, this kind of little bit on the side. And the Samaritans thought, you know what, I'm not bothering. A lot of the Samaritans decided, although they, were, um, they were still had sort of the... The law, the law of the Jews to obey, they thought, you know what, I don't need the temple. I'm going to worship God without the temple. And this is like, the breeding thing was bad enough, but this is like biggest sin ever, number two. The fact that they wouldn't need the temple. So the Jews, they hated the Samaritans. They sent them all off to live in Samaria together and just be there. And um, they were like, you, have, you are failures. Everything that you could have possibly done to, to throw back in God's face, you have done. They hated them. And every year, um, before, uh, once a year, there was this sort of festival called Passover. And just before Jesus came on the scene, um, there was this event where they had Passover. And what would happen is people would come from all around the world to the temple to experience Passover. And uh, the day before Passover, some Samaritans broke into the temple and just scattered dead human bones absolutely everywhere. And made the temple unclean, which meant that Passover had to be cancelled that year. The festival was completely cancelled. If you were a Jew, that's like, why would you even do that? Why would you do that? So they were so annoyed. They were so angry. And um, I just really want to, if you turn like a page back into Luke 9, you can see the hatred there is there. So in, verse, um, in chapter 9 from verse 51, uh, Jesus has decided that he is going to go um, into a Samaritan village and try and explain to the Samaritans who he is and all those kinds of things. And the disciples wouldn't get this anyway. They'd be like, why are you even bothering? So from verse 51, it says this. As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into Sam- a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to, dis- um, to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? That's huge. Like, when have you ever been annoyed by someone and said, okay, right, that's it. God's going to burn you. You don't do it. It's not normal. These guys had such a passionate hatred that when they rejected Jesus, this was their first response. You can feel that like hatred in there, can't you? So this is the guy. You've got this Samaritan, and this Samaritan is absolutely hated. They would have heard the word Samaritan, and all these things, all this history would have come into their head. And they would, he would have been the last person that they expected to help. But um, if we keep on reading verses 33 to 36, it says this, But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. 
So this guy not only would have surprised them, but this is the guy who knew what it was to love. The guy who had been written off, the guy who made mistakes, the guy who wasn't godly enough, the guy who they probably thought didn't even deserve to be in the story, the guy who had failed, who had messed up. This is the guy who knows how to love. And he gave of himself. He gave of himself financially. He gave of himself um, physically. He gave of himself spiritually because he too would have become unclean by going anywhere near this guy. He gave himself, uh, I don't know if I said emotionally, all these different ways. He invests in this guy who is broken and a mess on the floor. This is the guy that knows what it is to love dangerously, to love powerfully, and to love with total abandonment. The guy who was a failure. Now, I don't know um, you guys' history. I don't know you guys' reputations. I don't know where you're at in the present. I don't know how godly you are, how, how many good things that you do, how busy you are. But what God wants to know is what is in your heart. Because whatever's in your heart will be justified in your head. Is your heart broken for other people? You know, I had... Um, a little time trying to think about this, trying to think, well, what's the difference then? What is it that's the difference between the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan? What is it that sets the Samaritan apart from the others? And I tried to think of something really clever. (laughs) Not surprisingly, I didn't come up with very much. Um, But what I did do was that I found something that Martin Luther King had said. And again, funnily enough, I couldn't think of anything better than what he said. So um, I'm going to read you what he said was the difference between the first two and between the Samaritan. And he said this. The priest and the Levi thought, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? The Samaritan thought, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And that's the difference right there. Who is your heart for? Really? You know, in all of this, the original question that the expert in the law asked was about eternal life. What do I have to do to achieve eternal life? And I think in some of this, Jesus' response is, you know what? You can bring eternal life to the now. You're bothered about the kingdom of God later, but actually when you learn to love dangerously, when you learn to have your heart broken for other people, you bring the kingdom of God to earth right now. And that is what I'm calling you to that you will experience something of God and you will go out and do the same for other people. Um, If we read the end bit, verses 36 to 37, I love this. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. You know, we don't go and do likewise because we're better than anyone else either. That's the other thing. Because I've got it right. I don't even pay for jeans. We go out and we do um, stuff for other people. We love dangerously because we have experienced something else. Um, On Corinthians 6, there's this great passage where it talks about, you know, you guys used to be murderers, adulterers, liars, all this sort of stuff. You guys have got it wrong and you've messed up. But do you know what? You are justified by Christ. You are made innocent because of Jesus. And that's what makes you different. We don't love other people dangerously because we're better. We love other people dangerously because we have experienced something in God that God says, go out and show that to other people. That's what this is about. You know, the church is called to be the hope for this world, the hope for the nation. Jesus is the hope of the world, and he wants to change this world through us. Okay, we are his church. And Jesus said, are you ready to love dangerously, to love powerfully, to love with abandonment? And do you know what it will cost you? 
In the same way it cost me, it will cost you. But is that the kind of heart that you are prepared to have? A broken heart in the same way that my heart is broken for you. So what I'm going to do is I would, um, I'm going to pray for you guys, but I would love it if you would stand, if you're able, if you could stand to your feet while we pray. The band are going to come back up, okay, and they're going to play a song. Um, and what I would like to do is I would like to pray, but I'd like to spend at least the first part of this song just waiting on God. And you guys ask God, okay, if I'm really honest with myself, what state is my heart in? What have I been justifying in my head because my heart maybe isn't right? That we come before God and say, God, I want to see, really see what it is that you've done for me. And I want my heart to be broken for other people in that same way. So what we're going to do is we're just going to wait and listen to the words of the song, but focus on God. Really ask God, what is it? that you, need, or you want my heart to be broken for, a person maybe, a people group, or maybe you just feel like your heart might have gone hard. So uh, as we listen this morning, I would just really love it if you just wait on the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. Father, I pray that uh, you would do all the work that's about to happen now, God, that it wouldn't be us imagining, Father, but that you would really speak into our hearts and you would give us the self-discipline to be focused on you.